BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you on the line with us is the president of Social Security Works, the chair of the Strengthen Our Social Security Coalition, author of three books about Social Security, Nancy Altman. The website socialsecurityworks.org. Her Twitter handle is Nancy Altman 5, number 5 or at SSWorks. Nancy, welcome back to the program. I understand that Donald Trump issued an executive order that could lead to the death of Social Security, or at least the Social Security Trust Fund, within three years. Do I have that right? You have that right, the death of Social Security. He has taken an action that's never before been taken in the 85-year history of the program, unilaterally unprecedented, and more than his action, when he took the action, he stated that if reelected, he would do more of the same, and that will lead to literally the end of Social Security as we know it. Do you think that he did this in order to get Wall Street to give him more money? Well, that could be. I think um, the reason he did it is the reason that a lot of the conservative elites misunderstand the program. They don't need Social Security. They don't understand how important it is to virtually all of us that we all contribute to it. And they see it as simply a tax. You know, they can make it on their own. They see it as a tax. And they figure, oh, who doesn't want a tax cut? And so they don't understand that these are premiums we all pay as part of our earned benefits. Right. So your FICA tax is not really a tax. It's a premium that you're paying. And Trump is saying, we're going to stop you from paying the premiums on your insurance. And of course, when you stop paying premiums on your insurance policy, the insurance policy goes away. Nancy, I've told the story many times of my friend Michael Hutchison, who uh, in his 40s was out jogging in Santa Fe in the winter, going over a small bridge over a, a river. He tripped on some ice, uh, fell over the edge of the r- bridge into the river, broke his neck and spent the rest of his life. He died just a few years ago, spent the rest of his life paralyzed from the neck down. Social Security paid for everything. They paid for his housing. They paid for his food. They sent a nurse every day to, to, you know, turn him over and clean him up and do all this kind of stuff. I mean, without Social Security, he would have been dead, you know, by the side of the road kind of thing. And I don't think most young Americans realize 
that Social Security isn't just for people over 65. Social Security is, is an insurance policy that you literally can't buy in the marketplace. It is so comprehensive. It is so complete. It's a lifetime policy. One of my cousins gave birth to a child with spina bifida, you know, who was uh, profoundly retarded and disabled her entire life. She lived until she was in her early 20s and then died from her spina bifida. And again, Social Security came in and helped that family remain whole. How do we convey this to young people that, you know, my cousin was in her 20s when this happened. How do we convey this to people? You know, the spin is always, oh, it's just old people. You're exactly right. And let me offer you one more story. And that is someone, a colleague of ours, who works for Paralyzed Veterans of America. He's a millennial. He never thought about Social Security. He believed all of the nonsense that it wouldn't be there and all of that. And got into, was serving our country, had an accident, wound up in a wheelchair, and he will say that he would have been homeless without Social Security's disability benefits. So it's really important for all of us to realize, and the good news, I mean, and actually back to your question about Wall Street, Social Security is extremely efficient, more than 99 cents of every dollar gets paid for benefits, less than a penny of every dollar for administration, which you cannot find in the private sector. And you know how much of that money goes to Wall Street? Zero. So that is why Wall Street is dying to get its hands on the trillions of dollars that run through Social Security. But I think it's really important to get the word out. The good news is that although the younger you are, the less likely you are to believe that it's going to be there for you. And as we just have said, it's there for you right today. But if you ask a follow-up question, do you think then we should get rid of it? They say no, because even if millennials don't think or younger people don't think they're going to get it themselves, they know their parents get it, their grandparents, their other colleagues. And they don't want to have to open up a room in their house for those folks. (laughs) Exactly. And that's what it was before Social Security. People routinely moved in with their adult children. And today... It's uh, people have the choice. They can live independently. And it's a program that works, which is why the conservatives hate it so much, because it puts the lie to the idea that the private sector can do everything better than than the government. Social Security is far superior to private life insurance, private disability insurance, and private retirement annuities. Right, because nobody's trying to skim 20% off the top, first of all. Secondly, nobody, you know, they don't have it. Yeah, and they don't have an army of claims adjusters whose main job is to figure out reasons to throw you off the policy, as all these for-profit companies do. I mean, they do, obviously, they're looking for fraud and and things like that, but... No, no, but they don't have... It's not a high-paid CEO that you've got in the private sector. There's no profit motive. You don't have to go out and pay money into advertising and all of that. It is run by civil servants, and it is run very efficiently. We're talking with Nancy Altman, the uh, president of Social Security Works, uh, chair of the Strengthen Our Social Security Coalition, and the author of three books about Social Security, socialsecurityworks.org. Nancy, for those who are, you know, wonks on this issue, describe exactly what it is that Donald Trump did with this executive order and what the consequences would be if he gets reelected and fulfills his promise to make it permanent. Well, about 90% of Social Security's revenue comes from the premiums employees pay and matched by the employers. So Trump, who hates Social Security, has called it a Ponzi scheme, despite his 
You know, I'll never cut it. Every one of his budgets proposed cuts to Social Security. It's a starve the beast tactic. It's, you know, the idea of you shrink the government till you can drown it in the bathtub. That's what he wants to do to Social Security. He tried to get Congress as part of the COVID package. He said he'd veto it if they didn't cut these premiums. And even the Republicans said, hey, we can't do that right before an election. We're raiding Social Security. So he did it on his own. He just, he couldn't come, but what he could do is defer them. The same way that that um, the IRS deferred income taxes from April 15th to July 15th, he said, okay, the amount that's owed for Social Security withdrawals, we're going to postpone that till the end of the year. And if I get elected, we'll, we're going to get rid of those. So in the short term, it's a four-month delay. Even the Chamber of Commerce doesn't like it. It's completely inadministrable. It's going to, they're using the federal employees as guinea pigs. So they're going to get a small increase now, and then they're going to have to pay double in January. And it's giving hmm. employers a, a tax-free loan. But the real danger is what he says if he gets reelected. This election is crucial for Social Security. The Democrats, thanks to Bernie Sanders, are all for expanding Social Security and making those of the very top the millionaires and billionaires pay more. And Donald Trump and the Republicans want to end Social Security. Amazing. You can read all about it at socialsecurityworks.org. Nancy, you can tweet her at Nancy Altman, number five. Nancy Altman is the president of Social Security Works. She's also written three brilliant books about Social Security. I encourage you to check those out. Nancy, thanks so much for dropping by. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Here on the True People's Media, the Tom Hartman Program, back with your calls and more of the news of the day. Stick around. The Hartman Report is a free daily podcast, seven days a week, and you can find our entire three-hour podcast over at TomHartman.com. Nikki in Joplin, Missouri. Hey, Nikki, what's up? Hi, Tom. I have a comment and a question. The woman that won the primary in Georgia, she's a QAnon, and she posted a picture of a gun pointed at Nancy Pelosi. I think she should be oh kicked God. to the curb. And what are the Republicans going to do when these people start being in Congress? This is quite dangerous. We're already in a dictatorship and now we've got this and people call them crazy sometimes i call them dangerous and i want to know what you think some of the republicans are going to do when they're in congress with well i think that we can tell uh, part of the answer to that nikki by looking at what republicans did when similar people were in congress michelle bachman was in congress when steve king was in congress from iowa you know people who were openly racist openly homophobic openly hateful toward many of our fellow brothers and sisters, family members, you know, aunts, uncles, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters. The Republican Party basically stood back and said, oh, I'm sorry, there's nothing we can do. You know, the guy who yelled, you lie at uh, Obama. Oh, I'm sorry, we can't do it. Yeah, it's bad manners. It's terrible. Well, I feel I don't like we're living in Germany in the 1930s. I really do. I think we're living through a very similar time, Nikki. I really do. I agree with you. Uh, I think fascism is a real thing. And and thank you, Mm -hmm. Nikki. And we need to be calling it out.
So for our Tom Harbin Insider video that's available over at TomHarbin.com, it's pretty mind-boggling, actually. Candidate Trump, back in 2016, said, I'm not going to cut Social Security like every other Republican, and I'm not going to cut Medicare or Medicaid. Every other Republican is going to cut, but I won't. That's what he said. Well, what did his budget actually propose? His budget actually proposed, this is last year's budget. Congress didn't pass it, thank God, but this is what his budget proposed. $1.9 trillion in cuts to Medicare and Medicaid and $26 billion in cuts to Social Security. And now he is block granting Medicaid to the states, which is already cutting back on Medicaid programs in the red states. You can check it all out over at TomHartman.com. Trump's efforts to basically destroy Social Security and his promise to completely destroy it if he becomes reelected. I think it's one of the most underreported stories in the media, period, full stop. And as we continue through the program, I'm going to get into a, a rather lengthy rant here about why it, for some people, feels like the Democrats might be on the verge of losing or might lose. And what is the proper way to fight Donald Trump? And it involves, you know, calling out some very specific behavior on his part that the press up to this point has been unwilling to call out. So we'll get to that. But right now, I'm just wondering, is it possible that Donald Trump is trying to do the same thing that other strongmen governments around the world have done over and over and over again? LCC's doing it in Egypt right now. Erdogan's doing it in Turkey right now. Orban in Hungary, Putin in Russia. Pick your country. You put your close buddies in charge of what had been government operations, the government-run oil company or the government-run utilities, or, or you give them government lands like Trump is doing right now, giving big corporations, mining companies, drilling companies, federal lands, taking our national parks and carving them up. He just did this with millions of acres in Alaska. Take a national park, carve it up, sell it off, or give it for pennies on the dollar, or even for free in the case of Alaska, I believe, give it to the big oil companies. And then what do the big oil companies do? They give you money. And if they give it to your super PAC, you can keep that money. You know, is this what's really going on? Tim in Shelby Township, Michigan. Hey, Tim, what's on your mind? Hi, Tom. I think a lot of what's driving Trump is his allegiance to Putin. That the weaker we get, both economically, the moral of the country, and also our military, I would argue that you're on to something, Tim, but there's kind of multiple levels at which this operates. It's fairly clear, I think, probably to all Americans that President Putin has something on President Trump, right? You know, that Trump not only refuses to condemn Putin or Russia for, you know, things that, oh, well, you know, poisoning your political opponent, for example. Germany has now come out and said, yes, we have detected the evidence of this poison. Here's the name of the poison. It's a Russian military poison. They've used it before to kill former spies and things. This is how they operate. And every democracy in Europe is going, yeah, we need to do something about this. There's going to be an emergency NATO meeting. They're talking about an emergency UN meeting. They asked Trump about it and he goes, oh, I, you know, I want to see the evidence. 
In other words, he's not willing to go there. So obviously, you know, whether Putin's got PP tapes on him or whether Trump is holding out because Putin has offered him a billion dollar, you know, Trump Tower Moscow deal and he's going to make him fabulously rich and even, you know, offer to relocate the entire Trump crime family after the election. Nobody knows exactly why, but it's probably one of those things. But I think that the larger issue here, Tim, is that I think Trump is trying to do the same thing that Putin has essentially done, which is put yourself in power, surround yourself by really, really wealthy people. You know, his Commerce Secretary, Wilbur Ross, is worth $5 billion and, you know, appears to be making a hell of a lot of money manipulating the market. His Education Secretary, Betsy DeVos, is worth billions of dollars. I mean, he has basically surrounded himself with rich people or rich wannabes or the agents of rich people. And I think he's doing it because he thinks that if he gets another four years, these people can actually start just handing him large wads of cash. It's already happened, you know, subtly through the inaugural committee and through the election committees and the super PACs and things. But I think he's trying to turn us into a third world country where, you know, if you want to do business in America, you've got to grease Donald Trump's palm. What do you think? I think... That's very probable, but also that once he gets these people in place, they're in place whether he wins the election or not. That money they've already gained is already in the bank accounts, and there's nothing we'll be able to do about it. Well, I think the added benefit to him, for example, right now, Louis DeJoy, it's apparent that five of his employees at his previous company, the company that contracted with the post office, said that every year DeJoy would shake them down for basically $100,000 campaign contributions to Trump and other Republicans. Tom Tillis was another big one that was getting a lot of his money because this was in North Carolina. And then he would pay them back by giving them a larger bonus than the company. That's a felony. He's been apparently doing that for 20 years to become, you know, one of the Republican Party's biggest fundraisers, basically rerouting his own company's money, the profit that he's making in his contracts with the post office, into Trump's pockets, or into his pockets, and also into the GOP's pockets. And I think that one of the things that DeJoy is thinking right now is that he has to destroy the post office really quick and slow down the mail, because if Trump loses, DeJoy's going to go to jail. And if Trump wins, Trump will pardon DeJoy and maybe some of the other guys. So that's how it looks to me. Tim, thank you for your thoughts. Dave in Federal Way, Washington. Hey, Dave, what's up? Hey, not too much, Tom. I wanted to make a comment on Trump's comments about veterans being suckers and losers. And I want to say why that's Mm -hmm. important to everybody, really. Look, all Trump voters really detest veterans. I mean, this is what I've experienced. I did 25 years in the Army. But what they detest is they perceive a veteran as like a threat, all right? They perceive a veteran as a threat to their material stuff. And also on the issue of racism and everything. Well, well, because, look, they don't believe in abstraction. That is all Trump voters have in common. That's their most common denominator. None of them believe in abstraction. You know, ideas over events, all right? And military service and racism and all these sort of things are abstractions. To them. I've been paying attention to this thing with Erdogan, France, and Greece. Look, Erdogan said that France and Greece, um, he got some sort of revenge on them. Now, in the military, there's this thing called proportionality, right? Where you attack your enemy, you decide whether you want to use equal proportion. And a lot of times, proportion, a proportional response is boring. Now, let's take Trump's mindset for a second. Let's say something happens with Russia or China, and his military advisors encourage him to use proportion. 
But his political advisors say, look, proportion, that's not going to get you any headlines, boss. You need to get reelected, boss. Now, remember, they don't believe in abstraction. So Trump's going to be like, no, no, let's not do proportion. Let's do disproportion. Let's do shock and awe. Now, what I worry about is a country like, you know, Russia said if they are attacked with American standoff weapons, they will attack where that originated. In other words, if we use a UAV, they are going to attack where the, the UAV is being controlled, like maybe back in Las Vegas or something. Do you understand? I do. I get it. But Dave, there have been multiple opportunities for the U.S. to respond. And I, I've been kind of actually happy that these have not made major headlines in the United States because they would generate because doing so would generate political pressure for Trump to do something. But you have Russian forces in Syria who came into direct physical conflict with American soldiers in Syria and injured four of them, as I recall. You have Russian bombers that have pushed American aircraft out of the way in U.S. airspace. You have Chinese warships that have fired bombs or missiles in the vicinity of U.S. warships. And in one case, threatened. It wasn't a warship, but it was connected to a, an aircraft carrier, whatever you call it, group, and threatened to swamp the boat. I mean, there has been no shortage of opportunities. If, if Trump was looking for a Tonkin Bay, for a USS Maine, for something that he could use as an excuse to start a war. There's been no shortage of opportunities. I think that what they've been doing is they've been testing him. They've been showing each other and the rest of the world that America under Trump is a paper tiger. What do you think? Well, yeah, hey, Tom, I want to make a a point. Look, I am not trying to insult anyone's intelligence, especially not yours. Look, what we got to realize is it's all Trump voters. They don't like abstractions. And Trump has already laid the groundwork of big master Biden. All this stuff's going to carry on into the Biden administration. And Trump's made the world exponentially more dangerous. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. Dave, thank you. We'll be back with more of the news of the day and your calls in just a moment. What a day. What a week. Well, 56 days out, if I'm doing my math right, to the election. Stick around. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. There is a lot going on. We're watching, on the one hand, our, our democracy disintegrate in front of us, and on the other hand, possibly pulling it back together. On the science revolution this week, the impact of the pandemic on Trump's refusal to acknowledge science or join the World Health Organization's backed vaccine cooperation pact. It's harming Americans as Trump brings the con into the pandemic. Dr. Bandy Lee is here on the science of hate mongering. Is Donald Trump's hate contagious? Ellie Zupnik drops by about another broken promise on drug pricing from Donald Trump as the August 24th deadline comes and goes. Plus, Kevin Patel is here on the pollution from wildfires. Tune into the Science Revolution wherever fine podcasts are found. Quick math, the less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. 
Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. You're listening to Tom Hartman. Morris in Long Beach, California. Hey, Morris, thanks for listening to KPFK. What's up? That's because I love you, Professor Harden. Y'all uh, must be talking about the man. <laughs> I you, President. Morris. Professor, you had a call last week. I heard you uh, this morning on KPFK because they broadcast your show the following, day, the following day in the morning. And you had a couple of callers, and one of them, I'm not going to mention no name, but one of them, I really love this guy. And uh, he was really just, he just gave up on the country. Talk about going to another country. Just, just gave up on, let me tell you something. This is the only country that I know. And I know that the struggle goes on, but I'm not quitting, I'm not running, and I'm not going to get the devil in my mind. And the words of an imperfect man must come to pass about inalienable rights, Thomas Jefferson. Okay, so now you got to ask yourself, okay, so what are you doing? Well, let me tell you what Morris is doing. Here in uh, a city called Inglewood, the Los Angeles Rams are moving into a stadium, almost 300 acres, of, okay, on the 13th. Uh, Sunday, they open up against the Cowboys. How about them Cowboys? Well, we're going to be out there uh, a rally because we want those people, I think it's seven banks, to uh, invest $25 million into the Inglewood Unified School District. Now, if you go online and you look up communitybenefitsagreement.com, and when you read how much money, they, they talk about unprecedented investment, how much money these people are mm -hmm. making, you'll understand why we're out there requesting that y'all kick in a little something for the schools. Now, that's what democracy is all about. You see, uh, they, the in Jewish theory. people had trouble getting up in here. Immigrant people had trouble getting up in here. Poor white people had trouble getting up in here. Uh, I mean, everybody's dealing with something. I'm not making no excuses for the manifestations of America. But everybody's had right. to deal with something. We're going to deal with something. And this is all we got, man, and we've got to make this one work. And that, that, that's all I want to I'm say. I'm with you. Yeah, I'm with you, Morris. And Morris, thank you so much for the call. You know, people call into the show from time to time going, you know, I'm out of here and I'm over this and all this kind of stuff. But I'm not leaving. And frankly, I mean, right now, if you've got a U.S. passport, you can't leave either. There is basically no country that you would want to go to that will take an American right now with an American passport. We are locked in. Another one of those stories that basically doesn't get any coverage in the media. That, you know, here we are, we're stuck. Where are you going to go? You know, there's no European country that'll take you. In fact, you can't even get there. You can't even fly to Europe. I mean, there's no place to go. 
China won't take you. Taiwan won't take you. South Korea won't take you. Japan won't take you. Australia won't take you. New Zealand won't take you. France, Germany, Italy, Spain, Sweden, Denmark, Norway, Poland. Forget about Hungary. They're not taking anyone. I mean, you know, Viktor Orban's whole thing is, oh my God, immigrants, right? And that uh, Jewish guy, George Soros, he's sending them here. It's all his fault. I mean, that's where we're at right now. And this is not good. It's, this is actually very, very dangerous. It's dangerous for us. It's dangerous for democracies all over the world that, that use America as an example of how a democracy can be done. I'll pick up some more of your phone calls in just a moment here on the Tom Hartman Program, the place where smart people get their news. The hidden history of Monopoly tells how Robert Bork, yeah, that guy from the Reagan era, transformed corporate America and destroyed the American dream. Welcome back. Tom Harvard here with you. Uh, Virgie in Jackson, Tennessee. Hey, Virgie, what's up? Hey, I was looking about the young man in Wisconsin that got shot in his back. And mm-hmm. how, how he got shot, and he wasn't a... He wasn't hurting the policeman at all. But the main thing I was thinking about the young man that came from Illinois, a vigilante came from Illinois, and these evangelists giving so much praise and raising so much money for this young man. And the policeman said, if the young, those, those two men had been bad and curfew, they would have got shot. But he had said not one thing about the young man. He was a teenager. He wasn't a bad a curfew time. And this is what bothering me why they give this young man so much praise coming in Wisconsin, which you're not supposed to have a gun at Wisconsin at that age. And they are giving him so much praise. And if, if he does, it's not something right. And it just this is really bothering me, how our country has turned. And we wish him the one that he's doing wrong. It's just bothering me that the people that that our country has gone so far to that Right, and they said when you kill someone, they protest it. Uh, just uh, police kill someone, but someone else can come in and shoot, shoot someone like this. And I'm just this is bothering yeah. me. We have a country. Trump dying. has been given multiple opportunities, Virgie, to condemn both that young man who did the killing in yeah. Wisconsin and the killing itself. And Trump has declined in all cases to basically condemn that. And I think that that tells us basically all we need to know. It's absolutely terrible. Virgie, thank you. Thanks for the call. Maurice in Chicago. Hey, Maurice, what's up? Hey, God bless you, Tom Hartman. Uh, Shout out to uh, Brother Morris out there in Inglewood. He's on the right track with economics. He's on the right track with the banks. I want to say to you guys, I love the way you connected those economic dots with Trump and the way he's doing with all those rich people he's putting in charge of these agencies. We got to do what you did, man. We got to follow the money. We got to connect the dots. We have to do our thing November 3rd. I mean, we have to overwhelm this, this monstrous voter suppression movement they got going on. Overwhelming vote will negate that. I'm sure of it. The numbers say it. I agree. But I agree, and that's... Go ahead. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. The people people power, man. People power. But this money mm-hmm. thing, Tom, it, it's what's going on. It's, they're, they're stealing the national treasury right under our eyes. The people's money. And, and right in the middle of that is Citigroup, Chase, Wells Fargo, and Bank of America. Now, 
The people have to pay taxes, Tom. There's nothing we can do about that, okay? We have to do that. But those dollars that we have in those aforementioned banks, we can march to those banks, demand our money be given to us, close our accounts, and put a, a serious dent in this movement that they have. They're trying to globalize, uh, monopolize the money. But the people, mm-hmm. just like we use our voting power, we can use our economic power to shut this thing down, Tom. Thank you for listening, brother. I like the way you connect the economic dots, man. Keep it up. Okay. Maurice, thank All you very right. much. Thanks for the call and, and your comments. Spot on. Mike in Munster, Indiana. Hey, Mike, what's up? Yeah, hi, Tom. I was wondering about Trump's comments about the generals profiteering off the wars and that enlisted men are okay for him. And I'm thinking he's trying to sow division in the military. And Yes, he is. Up, yeah. Colonel Larry Because he knows the generals know what's going on. Their job is to think strategically. You know, they've been educated in military history. They they know how fascism arises. They know how fascists take over countries. They understand all this stuff. The enlisted men, by and large, are basically high school graduates who went through basic training, which was not that kind of training, and probably are not as well informed about exactly who, who Donald Trump is and what he's up to in the historical context. And so, of course, it's the, it's the uh, officer service the commission service, the, the, the officers corps who are looking at Trump with disgust. And, you know, among the enlisted men and women, you're seeing, well, you're actually, we're seeing, you know, fewer than 50% of them supporting him too. But forgive me, Mike, I interrupted. You were on a, on a roller. Yeah, no. Colonel uh, Larry Wilkerson did a think tank, a tip project, I think it was called, was gaming out scenarios if Trump tries to stay in power. And his main finding about the use of military, if he goes that route, is uh, just like what you said, the upper officers are not going to follow, but possibly the enlisted would have more support. And his main thing was enlisted men stay in your barracks. You don't have to follow these orders. And I'm thinking after the election, if there's unrest, if he tries to steal it, and he calls out the military, he's just fomenting distrust between the enlisted men and the officers and hoping that something will come out of that, that, you know, the, the military or part of the military will follow, will go into the streets and put down unrest, will follow him. And that's what I'm thinking yeah. he's gaming out right now, is something for after the election. He's, he's setting the table for a military insurrection. That's my point. Could be. You know, I have more faith in our military, frankly, even though I'm not a big fan of giant defense budgets and, and the way that, you know, half, more than half of the entire military has now been privatized. More than half of our defense budget does not go to soldiers, sailors, Marines and airmen and Coast Guard people. Instead, it goes to giant contractors. But that said, that part of our military that is still, you know, intact and that is still our military, I think there's a lot of integrity and there's a lot of commitment and there's a lot of loyalty to country. And that's one of the reasons why revealing in public these things that Trump has said about soldiers is so incredibly destructive to him because they're, they're, they're the ones who will be called on to be the bulwark here. And I think this is hurting him with them. And I think that that's a good thing, frankly, for the future. Mike, thanks for the call. Great talking with you. We're going to get into, you know, a whole bunch of more stuff. So we've got a video up over at TomHartman.com, and this is about 
just a totally bizarre story about these three guys with no VA experience, uh, not even veterans, who are all big shots down at Mar-a-Lago, that Donald Trump has put in charge of the Veterans Administration functionally. And their association, one of them is the head of Marvel Entertainment, their association with Johnson & Johnson and the New York Stock Exchange, and Johnson & Johnson, the big drug company, taking this very, very cheap chemical ketamine tweaking the molecule a little bit and rolling it out as a new anti-suicide drug, Spravato, that in clinical trials caused six people to die, three of them by suicide, and none of the people taking the placebo to die. And now Trump is telling the VA, you have to buy this highly inflated priced drug from Johnson & Johnson, and the Democrats want to know what's up with the VA crowd guys. Check it out. It's at TomHartman.com. Tom Hartman here with you. Last night, Louise and I were looking out at the sky, and it just, over the course of about an hour, the sun turned from, you know, a big bright yellow sun in the sky into this dim kind of golden thing. The reflection of the sun on the Columbia River became kind of brown, a brown gold. The air filled with smoke. We had 50 mile an hour winds, in fact, 56 mile an hour wind gusts here in Oregon. I mean, you know, here in Portland, but it was the entire state. And I think part of Washington state got this windstorm too. And we've got fires on Mount Hood and well, there's a half a dozen fires now in Oregon. And that was what was uh, dimming everything out. So the news obviously is being, you know, California and people being trapped by wildfires and things like that is obviously and appropriately sucking up all the news media. But the entire West is on fire. I mean, from Colorado to the Pacific Ocean, from the Canadian border to the Mexican border, there are large chunks of the West, of the Western United States that are on fire. And this is what you would call early stage global warming. It's here now. We are experiencing it. Twin hurricanes hitting the East Coast. Derecho if I'm pronouncing that correctly, tornadoes, lines of tornadoes sweeping across Iowa and other Midwestern states, destroying everything in their path, having the impact of a Category 5 hurricane in the middle of the country, something we've almost never before seen. This is early stage global warming, and we need to be paying attention to it, and we need to be talking about it, and it needs to be put in that context. You know, this is like a lifelong smoker you know, who's diagnosed with early stage lung cancer. Well, with early stage lung cancer, there's surgery and chemo, and very often you can save the patient. We have early stage global warming, and let's hope we can save the patient. The scientists, we had Michael Mann on the show, the scientists are saying there's still a couple years in which we can do something, but it's going to take a radical something, a big something. So let's pick up your calls here. Rudy in Atlanta. Hey, Rudy, what's up? Hey, how you doing? I'm good. You know, there's so many things that I could talk about as you, you know, you say your things that I'm waiting. I'm like, wow. But, you know, climate, climate is the thing that we really need to be focused on. And we have been dealing with this guy. Tom, you know, we go back to this day in April. I think it's April 7th in which they were saying about when they came out and was telling about who this thing is actually killing. Right. You know, Tom, you can't legislate hate. There's nothing you can do about hate. And. You know, in this country, we're going to Actually, have, Rudy, you can. 
Well, you can you well, you can pass well, laws against hate crime. You know the hate crimes laws have been have been somewhat effective. You can prosecute people for those. You know you can't you can't rip hate out of people's hearts if that's what you're saying. Although I think well, that with a you know with a good educational program maybe you can. But back to you, Rudy. I'm sorry. I, I should have just. You know what? No, but you're right. No, but you're you know you're right, Tom. But the question is, will we have the will to do so? Because there you go. now you're talking about actually going and digging into the conscience of this country and actually doing the right thing. And do you have the courage to actually hear the truth and go back and reform? I mean, that's a heavy lift. Mm-hmm. We have, yeah. I mean, because, Tom, if you really look at where we are, there's no gray area as to where we need to go. As to whoever votes for Trump, there's no gray area. You either, I mean, there is no gray area. In my mind, there are no swing voters. You know, when I was talking to the screener earlier, Tom, I ran the two truck drivers this morning, and these two particular guys looked at me with disdain because I had a, a mask on. And, hmm. you know, it just, my question is, are these guys, are they comfortable knowing that this virus is killing people of color? Or I, I just... It boggles my mind, Tom, as to why these guys uh, have a disdain for doing something that's going to keep the public safe. I cannot wrap my mind around that. Here's what they believe, Rudy, and if you tune into some of the right-wing channels that are available to you as you travel across the country, you will hear this, I'm sure. I have heard it. I, I listen to these guys from time to time. And basically what they're saying is, number one, this disease, this is, you know, their sales pitch is that this disease is principally killing older people and black people and some Hispanics. I mean, you know, basically people of color and old folks. And these are, the people you're talking about are young and middle-aged white guys. And they think that they're immune because they internalize that message and right. uh, and have been since, as you pointed out, April 7th was the day that it hit the news. And April 9th, 10th and 11th were the days that all right. the big business organizations, Chamber of Commerce, and all these other guys and the Trump campaign all came out and started yelling, we got to open the country back up, you know, meaning, you know, white people's country and, you know, put those servers back to work. So, you know, I think that that's what it is, Rudy. I mean, I get the same thing. Louise and I, when, you know, we go on our daily walk, almost every day we encounter somebody who's not wearing a mask. My wife has turned into the, the mask Nazi. I used to do the <laughs> passive aggressive cough at people, but, but she's, wow. she just is confronting them. She's like, you're not wearing a mask. Get away from me. And right. it's like, and we had a guy yesterday yelling, yelling back at us saying, you don't belong here. And I'm like, what the hell? Well, what does that mean? Well, well, Tom, let me say this and I'm going to end this. Those of us that are listening, if we know better, we must do better yeah. because we have a heavy lift, Tom. We have to find some yeah. kind of way within our soul to connect with people that just don't understand what's going on because this is not about religion or politics. This is about survival. And if we don't pull this together, then we're all going to be extinct because I really believe the climate, this thing that's happening over in California, I have people that live in California, Tom, and I'm telling you, they're scared. They're talking about moving over to Georgia. It, yeah, I was, I was on the phone with some people in Colorado over the weekend. They're saying the same thing. They got fires just up the road from them. I, so, take care, Tom. A lot of concern. <laughs> a lot of concern. Yeah, g- good to hear from you, Rudy. It's always good to hear from you. Thanks a lot for the call. And, uh, you know, keep on trucking safely.
Our book club selection today is titled The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. The dedication of the book, this book is dedicated to the future generations of all species. Know that there were many of us who did what we could. This is from the introduction. The fall lasts long enough that I have time to watch the blue ice race upward, eons of time compressed into glacial ice, flashing by in fractions of seconds. I assume I've fallen far enough that I've pulled my climbing partner, Sean, into the crevasse with me. This is what it's like to die in the mountains, a voice in my head tells me. Just as my mind completes that thought, the rope wrenches my climbing harness up. I bounce languidly up and down as the dynamic physics inherent in the rope play themselves out. Somehow, Sean has checked my fall while still on the surface of the glacier. I brush the snow and chunks of ice from my hair, arms, and chest and pull down the sleeves of my shirt. Finding my glacier glasses hanging from the pocket of my climbing bib, I tuck them away. I check myself for injuries and incredibly find none. Assessing my situation, I find there's no ice shelf nearby to ease the tension from the rope so Sean can begin setting up a pulley system to extract me. I look down, nothing but blackness. I look at the wall of blue ice directly in front of me, take a deep breath, and peer up into the tiny hole into which I'd fallen when I'd punched through the snow bridge spanning the crevasse. The same bridge Sean had crossed without incident as we made our way up Alaska's Matanuska Glacier toward Mount Marcus Baker in the Chugach Range. You get to look down one more time, then that's it, I tell myself out loud. Again, there's only a black void yawning beneath me, swallowing everything, even sound. My stomach clenches. I remind myself to breathe. Sean, are you okay, I yell as I clamp my mechanical ascenders to the rope in preparation to climb up. Yeah, I'm all right, but I'm right on the edge, he calls back. I can't set an anchor to get out of the system, so don't ascend. We're going to have to wait for the other guys to catch up. Time passes. The onset of hyperthermia means I can't control my body from periodically shaking. To ignore my fear of dying, I gaze meditatively at the ice a few feet in front of me as I dangle. The miniature air pockets found in the whiter ice near the top of the glacier have long since been compressed, producing the mesmerizing beauty of centuries-old turquoise ice. Slightly deeper into the crevasse is ice that has been there since long before the Neanderthals. I hang suspended in silence, mindful not to move out of fear of dislodging Sean. Giving my full attention to the ice immediately within my vision, I focus on how the gently refracting light from above seems to penetrate and reflect off the perfectly smooth wall. Staring into it, the blue seems infinite. Despite the danger of my situation, the glacier's beauty calms me. Delicate snowflakes and their infinite possibilities of form land on mountainous terrain. Under its own weight, the snow is compressed into glaciers that scour and shape the face of the earth. Countless millions of tons of weight, aided by the force of gravity, push and pull these frozen rivers downhill, carving out cirques and troughs from uplifted geologic plates and sculpting the majestic heights of mountains that I have been drawn to since I was young. Eventually, our other two teammates arrive and work to extract Sean from his perch just six inches from the edge of the crevasse. All three of them set up a three-way pulley system. Laboriously, my teammates begin to haul me up, inches at a time, out of what nearly became my tomb. I continue to focus on the delicately shifting blades of blue in the ice as I draw closer to the surface, mesmerized by its raw beauty. My teammates pull me up to the lip of the crevasse. I repeatedly plunge the pick of my ice axe into the snow and haul myself out, never before as grateful for being on top of a glacier. I stand and gaze up at the mountain to the west, behind which the sun has just set. Snow plumes stream off one of its ridges, turned into ruddy red ribbons by the setting snow. Snowflakes flicker as they float into space. 
As relief floods my shivering body, I roar in gratitude and relief. Utterly overwhelmed by being alive and surrounded by the beauty of the mountain world, I hug each of my three climbing partners. Now safe, it sinks in how close to death I've been. That was Earth Day 2003. In hindsight, I believe the emotion I felt then stemmed in part from something else. A deeper consciousness that the ice that I had seen, which had existed for eons, was vanishing. Seven years of climbing in Alaska had provided me with a front row seat from where I could witness the dramatic impact of human-caused climate disruption. Each year we found the toe of the glacier had shriveled further. Each year for the annual early ice season festival on this glacier, we found ourselves hiking further up the crusty frozen mud left behind by rapidly retreating terminus. Each year the parking lot was moved closer to the glacier only to be left further away as the ice withdrew. Even sections of Denali, which stands over 20,000 feet tall and is roughly 250 miles in the Arctic Circle, had undergone startling changes. The ice of its glaciers was disappearing quickly. Our planet is rapidly changing, and what we are witnessing is unlike anything that has occurred in nature or even geologic history. The heat-trapping nature of carbon dioxide and methane, both greenhouse gases, has been scientific fact for decades, and according to NASA, there is no question that increased levels of greenhouse gases must cause the Earth to warm in response. Evidence shows that greenhouse gas emissions are causing the Earth to warm 10 times faster than it should. And the ramifications of this are being felt quite literally throughout the entire biosphere. The End of Ice, Bearing Witness and Finding Meaning in the Path of Climate Disruption by Dar Jamail. And then there's the flotilla. Uh, Louise and I lived on a boat in, in, in the Capitol Yacht Club in the Washington Harbor for seven years. We had a 46-foot Chris Craft constellation. It was made in 1986. We bought it used. We sold it when we were done. It was, it was good living. It was uh, relatively inexpensive, actually, all things considered, to live in Washington, D.C., kind of right in the middle of everything. And it was fascinating. We got to know some just wonderful people there. But one of the things I learned you know, owning a big boat is that you go slow <laughs> in a big boat because you got, you know, I mean, it's like 30,000 pounds of weight, right? Moving, you know, you, you move more than five miles an hour and you're going to throw a wake out that's going to swamp smaller boats. And that's apparently what happened. And the people in this boat thing in Travis Lake, Texas, the big boats were, well, everybody apparently was just behaving badly, ignoring distress calls, swamping each other. And it wasn't like, you know, Antifa showed up with big boats. These were Trump humpers who were just, you know, blowing each other off, you know, person by person. So anyhow, I mentioned that I was going to talk about what the Democrats need to do right now. And this, uh, you know, I was sharing with you a piece by Umer Haik earlier. This is from uh, EAND.co, which is kind of a subpart, I believe, of, of uh, Medium.com. And Umer wrote this brilliant piece. He said, take it from us survivors. This isn't how you fight fascism. And writes, to really fight authoritarians and fascists, you have to do three things, none of which Joe Biden is doing. It's not enough to make vague moral appeals. Oh, okay, you guys are misbehaving. You shouldn't be advocating killing people. Stop saying that there's very good people. You know, don't. Don't even bother. He writes, nobody cares in such desperate moments as these for the luxury of morality. People are concerned with self-preservation first and foremost. This is how America got here, how we entered a classic fascist spiral. In 2010, 
the American middle class, as a result of 30 years of Reaganomics, became a minority. What happens, he writes, when a nation suddenly becomes massively poorer, when 80% of your country live hand to mouth, 75% of your country can't pay all their bills, when the average person dies in debt? Well, then life becomes a bitter, brutal struggle, an effort at self-preservation. And the fascists love this. This is the perfect setup for fascist government. Because they are the peak of politics of self-preservation. That's what they that's what they sell. It's those hated minorities, those dirty, filthy subhumans. That's why my life is going nowhere. And Umer writes, this is exactly what happened in America, and that's why morality serves no purpose. In 2016, Trump got into the White House because the secret hate vote came out. Why didn't they show up in the polls? Because people didn't want to admit. White people didn't want to admit that they were voting hate. But morality is not what works. So what do you have to do? When you're fighting fascists, you have to begin by teaching people about the dangers of fascism. That when fascism arises in a society, it always destroys that society. Always. Do you really want to give the most violent, stupid men in society the power to jail and torture your kids? Over what? Hate and fear of black people? You can't appease fascists, Umeri writes. You must choose. The middle ground is not an option. If you try to be inoffensive to the fascists, you will lose Trump's silent majority. If, on the other hand, you speak out in a way where you reach that silent majority, you lose the hardened fringe. So basically, this is the choice. There's two people who support Trump. There's the quiet, basically, you know, fearful racists and fearful for their future group. That's the majority of Trump supporters. And then there's a small, hardcore minority who are fascists. And if you start calling Trump a fascist and you start calling the Republican fascist, you're going to piss off that small minority who actually are proudly fascist, the ones who show up with Nazi flags. But you may just get through to enough of the people who are simply afraid for their job to get it. So, you know, when somebody says, oh, Joe Biden's a radical socialist, you don't debate that. You just turn around and say, and Donald Trump is a fascist, and he's taking us down the same path the Nazis did. Umar says, we survivors and you real Americans are simply on different planets. You cannot fight fascism with lightweight moral appeals. You cannot fight it with complaints. You cannot fight it with objections. A collapsing society is a place where morality has gone out the window and life becomes a brutal affair. You must fight fascism by making a simple, tough, serious choice. You must call it fascism. You're listening to the Tom Hartman Program. He writes, you don't fight a bully by trying to reason with him. You punch him in the nose in a place where everyone can see it. And Joe Biden still hasn't said the word fascism. We're putting together a series of American history books. It started with a hidden history of guns in the Second Amendment. Then we had the hidden history of the Supreme Court, the betrayal of America. Then the hidden history of the Republican war on voting. The hidden history of monopolies, how big business destroyed the American dream. And then next spring, it's going to be the hidden history of oligarchy and tyranny.
Carl in Lake Stevens, Washington. Hey, Carl, what's on your mind today? Thanks for watching us on Facebook. Hi, Tom. You were speaking of fascism earlier, and mm-hmm. I noticed Friday a representative from New Hampshire, a state representative, James Spillane, uh, posted a public service announcement, and it's real short, I'll read it. If you see a BLM sign on a lawn, it's the same as having the porch light on for Halloween. You're free to loot and burn the house. This is on his Facebook page. It wow. made the local media. And, and keep in mind, he's an elected lawmaker from the state of New Hampshire. Now, he's a white Republican, you know, NRA guy, far-right religious guy. But his post was taken down, but he received likes and smiley faces, of course. But uh, the Republicans say explain meant no harm. But I'm just wondering, you know, how he gets away with this stuff. He should be in jail. He should be kicked out of the, his state office. I mean, I just wonder what your thoughts on that. I wouldn't send him to jail for that, but I would strip him of any, any, any position within any political party. I mean, that's outrageous. But sadly, I mean, this is, number one, Mark Zuckerberg, who is the majority owner of Facebook and basically rules it like a little king, has made these decisions. I mean, they kicked me off Facebook for a while until I raised enough hell. You know, he's made these decisions that Facebook is going to be basically the cesspool of the hard right and, you know, an authoritarianism and racism. And, and it is. You know, Facebook has been, you know, used by dictators all over the world to cement their power. And so you've got that problem. And then on top of that, you've got, you know, the problem of, of uh, we've got a racist in the White House who's fomenting this kind of stuff and agitating it and, and cranking it up. And so when people like this go nuts with us, it shouldn't surprise us. Um, Carl, thanks for the call. Thanks for the heads up. It's, that's a grim story. PJ in, is that Suisun City, California? Am I saying it right? That's too soon, but that's okay. It doesn't matter. Oh, okay. I'm concerned with Trump stealing the election or the Republican Party stealing the election through the use of their electronic voting machines. If you recall, in Detroit, there was a news report shortly after the 2016 election that over 75,000 votes for president magically disappeared from the counted results. And I'd like your views on this, because if this is in fact what they plan to do, because all you know, ever since Chuck Hagel introduced these electronic machines, right, none of the polls were correct. He won his election when he was 10 points down, and he won by 10 points. So they reversed. Right. Not only that, he, uh, Chuck Hagel voting on machine. At the time, Chuck Hagel was the president of ES&S, the voting machine company. Right. The vo- yeah. they, those voting machines were installed all across. Was it Kansas was the state he was from? I think it was. It's yeah. one of those. And they were, in, in any case, they were engaged all the way. They were involved all the way across the state. And he not only won the election, but he won black districts that had never gone Republican. And suddenly they were majority voting for Republican, for Republican Chuck Hagel. My question is, what can we do about it? And why aren't people more up in arms over this kind of cheating? Well, there has been an unwillingness, a fear, frankly, among Democrats. You know, when Randy Rhodes and me and I think Stephanie Miller, but there was a bunch of us with Air America who went to Washington, D.C. to meet with a group of Democratic senators back around 2000, somewhere between 2004 and 2007. And um, we met with a group of senators. One of us brought this issue up 
and said, you know, these electronic voting machines are insecure. They're so bad that they're making jokes about them on The Simpsons. Homer's pushing the gore button and, and it keeps saying thank you for voting for George Bush. We know that we've got a problem. Why are you guys not raising hell when every single state where the electronic voting machine results are different from the exit polls, the voting machine results are saying Republicans won when the exit polls say Democrats won. Why are you guys not raising hell? And this mm-hmm. one senator got up and said, you know, we understand this is a problem. We got lawyers looking into it. We got people looking into it. Don't worry. But we don't want to talk about it because we're afraid if people don't think that the elections are going to be safe and secure and legitimate, that they won't go to vote. And we don't want to discourage Democrats from voting. And, you know, it seemed to me at the time like this is absolutely upside down backward logic and that if the shoe were on the other foot, the Republicans would be screaming bloody murder and election fraud. And the Democrats need to be doing the same. But this has been largely the Democratic Party's policy right up until this election. I think this election is the first one where the Democratic Party is sitting up going, in large part, that's because of Brian Kemp and Stacey Abrams. And Stacey Abrams has been out there fighting the good fight and raising hell. And Greg Palace has been doing a spectacular job of publicizing it and promoting it. And we've been doing everything we can on our program, which has a pretty good size audience. You know, according to Talkers Magazine, we're reaching 7 million people. So, you know, we're hoping that this message is getting out. And I think it is. I think it finally is. But PJ, your concern is entirely legitimate. We'll be back with more of the news and more of my thoughts and yours in this uh, kind of national town hall meeting we have here every day. So get out there, get active, tag, you're it. We'll see you tomorrow. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com. 